Good morning. We are going to be picking up these themes as we continue the, the rest of our time today. Welcome to Solid Rock. If you're new or visiting, my name is Matt, and we're happy to have you. I'd love to meet you before you leave. If you've been with us throughout the past month, you know that we spent the last three weeks discussing slavery. So, since we are in the mode of uncomfortable conversations, let's talk politics. <laughs> Who's up for it? I am familiar with the old adage that insists that there are two subjects you shouldn't broach in polite company, politics and religion, so this is going to take us into some impolite waters as we are going to deal with both in a way. So we are only talking politics today insofar as we as Christians have a particular responsibility or a relationship to those who are in charge on the political scene. If you haven't been around here long, uh, long before you get up and leave um, at the mention of politics, I want to assure you that this conversation is not in any way a partisan conversation. L let's just get right into this. We are going to be, everybody's aware of this, we are going to be entering a, another election year relatively quickly. In fact, in many ways, that has already begun as campaigns are up and running and the primaries for the party challenging those who are currently in power, those primaries are upon us. And wherever you fall on the political spectrum, I think there is this temptation for all of us to assume that our guy or our girl or our party, that our platform we are going to be the ones to fix everything that is wrong with this world. So on one hand, we can make the country great again, whatever that means. Or on the other side of things, it is our new champion of political power that is going to finally fix everything those people have destroyed. So you have probably heard some of these arguments. And while I am not necessarily a proponent of an anti-political approach to living life in this world, I mean, we are citizens, and we can let our voices be heard in these processes. We, we can have conversations about these issues. That is fine and, and good, but believing that our preferred group is going to fix everything that is wrong with the world and make the world as it should be, according to us, that is inconsistent with how Christians are to view these issues. Maybe that seems like a bold claim, but this is why I say that. It is not a huge leap to move from that conviction to the view that our person is messianic in their ability to right wrongs, to achieve greatness, to fix the world. We hinted at this last week as we insisted that our attempts at pursuing justice, as important as they are, will always be incomplete. And we will always await the perfect justice Christ alone brings. And yet, as humans, we have this tendency to put our trust and our hope in human leaders, whether political or cultural or something else altogether. But we have a tendency to put our hope in humans, I think on one hand, because they present identifiable policies that can be implemented. 
And there is a plan in place to initiate change. And those actionable items give us something tangible that we can trust and we want so badly to trust something that we can see and understand. We, we want a strategy that offers specific actions that will turn things around. The psalm that we are going to read today, Psalm 146, argues, I think, that any inclination like that is misguided. So let's jump into the psalm, Psalm 146, and it begins in a rather unsurprising way, as many psalms do, with these words in verse 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, I will praise the Lord as long as I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So this is an unsurprising beginning coming from our Bible's prayer book, the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord. As long as I live, I am going to praise my God. This is the primary purpose in my life, to allow my life to point to and bear witness to the glory of God. Praise the Lord. And then we get into some specific, some much more direct instruction in verse 3. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes. In a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, put these two verses this way. I think it's helpful. He said, don't put your life in the hands of experts who know nothing of life, of salvation life. Mere humans don't have what it takes. When they die, their projects die with them. Don't put your trust in princes, the psalmist says. Why? First of all, it's a bad idea to trust in these types of leaders, not because they can't do anything good. They can. Not because they aren't a benefit to society. They can be a benefit to society, but don't trust them. Don't put your hope in them simply because they are not God. They are not worthy of your trust or your hope. Sure, maybe they think and act like they are God, but they're not. They can't even come through on some very simple promises made during a campaign. Well, I think we'll see that take place once again next year, as it is every time somebody new comes to power or every time somebody is reelected for another term. Dozens of promises will be made to win your devotion, to win your support, and ultimately your vote on a particular Tuesday next November. But a lot of those promises are either going to be completely abandoned or at least changed so much that they're unrecognizable when they're no longer politically advantageous. And if I sound cynical about the whole process, maybe I am. Or, and this is what I choose to believe, or... Maybe I'm just trying to maintain a Christian view on all of this. That's a much more admirable way to view it, I think. It is fine for you to support a candidate. It is not okay for you as a Christian to put your trust or your ultimate hope in any political leader or any other leader of any kind. They aren't God. 
they will not be able to deliver everything you're looking for them to deliver. The psalmist says, don't put your hope in princes in whom there is no salvation. There is no help. Not that they can't do anything to help some of the problems, but ultimately, they can't provide any solution that delivers us as the human race from our predicament. And thinking that anyone or anything other than Christ himself can deliver us from our problems is at its core idolatry. So the psalmist says, don't put your hope in princes. There is no salvation. Tertullian, the incredibly influential Christian thinker and writer from the late 2nd century, early 3rd century, put it this way. He asked the question, should we carry a flag? It is a rival to Christ. Shall we carry a flag? It is a rival to Christ. As Christians, we don't put our trust in princes. We don't put our trust in nations. There's only one person worthy of our trust and our hope, and that is the King of Kings, as Paul talked about in our scripture reading today. And this isn't just something that we are tempted with in the 21st century. This is something the people of God always wrestled with throughout their history. It was even common in the first century Roman world where the emperor would at times take on the title of Savior, not in the same sense necessarily that the title is applied to Jesus, but still I think it highlights the assumption that often the most powerful leaders in the world at any given point in history can be perceived as godlike because we think they can save us. And what is more godlike for a human than having the actual power of life and death? To actually possess the ability to pardon somebody who has been condemned to death on one hand and at the same time, on the other hand, wage a war with nations and take hundreds and thousands of lives. What is more godlike than that? Pardoning lives condemned to death and killing other lives. And yet, the psalmist seems to indicate here that one of the primary reasons we can't, that we shouldn't put our trust in kings or princes for lasting change is because they're probably not going to even be around long enough to achieve that success. They have the power of life and death for others, at least temporarily, but they can't even secure long life for themselves. Verse 4 says, when his breath departs, what happens? He returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. This is a repeated theme that we find addressed throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Right from the beginning of that work, in chapter 1, the author says, this is how life works. A generation comes, when a generation comes onto the scene... A generation leaves. One generation comes, one generation leaves. This is the cycle of life. That theme continues to develop in chapter 2 where the author is talking about the vanity of something like wise living. In verse 16, it says this, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. It's really encouraging, and it gets better. Chapter 3, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man? 
And what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. This is the uncomfortable rule of life. It ends. And this life ends for everyone, prince and pauper alike. So while the prince or the king seems to be much more powerful, the king seems to be much more in control of every situation, their control is limited just like yours. So it is a fool's errand to trust in any earthly leader. Do not do it. Don't put your trust in princes or kings. They are not God, and pretty soon they won't even be around to offer their empty promise of salvation. So instead, the psalmist continues, put your hope and trust in the only one who can deliver any kind of salvation. Put your trust and your hope in God alone. We make it to the final longest section of this psalm, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free, something that the prince is ultimately unable to do. So the psalm began with the words, praise the Lord. As long as I live, as long as I have being, I will praise my God. So that's not only descriptive of the psalmist, but it's also instructive for us. We are to be a people who praise and worship our God. Now, some have argued that this sort of instruction that we find repeated throughout our scriptures from God to praise him and him alone, that that's sounds like a God who is narcissistic and demands or needs verbal affirmation of his people in order to be satisfied in himself. And when we see that characteristic displayed in other people, that's off-putting. So why wouldn't it be off-putting when we see something like that from God? But I, I think the biblical injunction that we find in this psalm, that we find repeated throughout our scriptures, is actually expressing Not a need to hear the verbal affirmation of God's people, but it is expressing a deep concern for human beings. And this is why. We all praise and worship something. We all praise and worship something. Maybe it's an earthly ruler. Maybe it's a physical pleasure or something else altogether. The problem with worshiping any created thing is that it will either die It will pass away or the pleasure won't last very long. And in the end, pursuing that or elevating that to a place of supremacy in our lives where it is the thing that we worship, it controls our lives and ends in destruction because that temporary pleasure that we are chasing and putting out all of our hope and trust in, it is fleeting and we will never be able to achieve what we're looking for, which in the end 
destroys us. But as the psalmist suggests here, when God alone is the object of our worship, our praise and our worship no longer turns in on itself. It no longer leads to destruction because the object of our worship is God in whom we have our being. God, who, as the psalmist said, made heaven and earth and everything in them. God, who lasts forever, ever. Furthermore, God is not like a self-seeking idol, like the princes of this world who promise good things but never deliver. The psalmist says God is a God who is capable of executing justice for the poor, capable of giving food to the hungry, not as a tool to further a personal agenda, but out of his just and compassionate character. We continue reading verse 8. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Earthly leaders, princes and kings, often can't or maybe simply won't initiate lasting positive change. They themselves don't last very long. Their lives and their power are temporary, and finally, they rarely have a genuine concern for those who are most in need. It is often self-preservation that is driving those decisions, but the God of Jacob, the psalmist insists, is altogether different. The God of Jacob is trustworthy. The God of Jacob is capable of deliverance and justice, capable of lifting those who are bowed down. We touched on this briefly last week as we talked about the fact that our efforts for justice, as important and necessary as they are, our hope is always this, that when our human justice fails and falls short, which it always will, our hope is this, that the God of Jacob, our God's hands, are skilled at justice. And so we put our hope and our trust in the only one who can deliver salvation. Before we move on, I want to offer just a couple of indications for you to be thinking about, indications that maybe you have placed your hope in a human leader rather than God. Do we believe that our leader or our party, do we believe that they have all of the answers to the world's problems? If we do, we are trusting an idol. Are we able to offer criticism to our side? If not, we are pr probably trusting in ourselves. Can we acknowledge any good in the other side? If not, we are failing to see their human hu humanity, the fact that they are bearer images of, image bearers of, of God, 
and we are trusting in ourselves. Let's move on. It's getting a little too heavy. Verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. And it concludes the same way it started. Praise the Lord. The Lord reigns forever. His rule, his authority, his justice lasts forever and is perfect. So we don't trust. We don't hope, we don't need to trust or hope in princes or kings or presidents or senators or governors because ultimately we know they are powerless to save us. And yet we still have a responsibility as citizens living under their rule. And what is that responsibility? Well, our Bible gives us several clues of how we as followers of Jesus should live in relation to political leaders. Today, I want to focus on just one that we didn't get a chance to cover last week as we were concluding our series in Philemon. But I want to briefly consider last week's New Testament text as it, I think, is a part of this discussion. It was from 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we read this, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all peoples, including kings, political authorities, those who are in high positions. And what do we pray? According to Paul here, we pray that their rule might not hinder our pursuit of Jesus, that their rule might not hinder our pursuit of godly living, of holiness and faithfulness to our true king, that we might be able to lead peaceful, quiet, godly lives under their rule. That is a pretty extreme thought in today's world that we might live peaceably and quietly, following our true king, living in peace, stillness, and calm. That's the life of a follower of Jesus. And how can we live peaceably and quietly in a tumultuous, insane, and unpredictable world? I think the key is found in Psalm 146. We believe that God is a king who can be trusted, and our hope is in the promise of God. So we pray for our leaders. Near the end of that text from Paul, we also pray that our leaders would come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is our hope for all peoples and nations on earth. We pray that all might come within the saving reach of God's embrace, and political leaders are no different. They too need deliverance from the powers of sin and evil. 
and we pray to that end. We pray, God, open their eyes for their need for you. This is our prayer for us. And how difficult is it for us to recognize our need for God? How much more difficult for those who have all of the power in the world at their fingertips? So we pray, God, reveal our leader's need for you. We pray that our leaders might pursue justice. Not because our hope is in them to accomplish perfect justice, but because we long for even small glimpses of justice. We long for increasing degrees of equity in society. And admittedly, kings and princes and presidents and senators have, albeit limited, but they have some power to work towards those ends. So as followers of Jesus, we don't trust in political leaders, but we do have an obligation to pray for them. For some of you, that has never been more difficult than it is now. For others, that may become much more difficult if things flip next year. But as Christians, however things shake out, we resist the impulse to find our hope in these temporary leaders either becoming too high or too low, depending on what happens. As Christians, whoever happens to be leading, we pray. God, open their hearts to you. Draw them to yourself. Enable them to lead in the way of equity and justice. And whatever happens... This is the thing we can control. Enable us to live faithfully as followers of our true king, whatever is going on on the political scene. So we pray for our political leaders, I think, precisely because we don't put our trust in them. We don't think they have the power to fix everything that's wrong. We don't think they can administer perfect justice we look to God alone for that. Kevin, if you want to come up. We are going to prepare to gather around the table of our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ. But before we do that, I want to put these instructions from Paul into practice. So if you'd stand. Austin, if you want to join me as we prepare to gather around the table of our Lord. We are going to spend some time praying for the church and for our world. Give it a moment so this prayer will be on the screen. Let us pray for the church and for our world. Almighty and ever-living God, we are taught by your holy word to offer prayers and supplications and to give thanks for all people. We humbly ask you mercifully to receive our prayers, inspire continually the universal church with the spirit of truth, unity, and concord. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray that you will lead the nations of the world in the way of righteousness, and so guide and direct their leaders, especially for us today, the president, the governor, and our mayor, that your people may enjoy the blessings of freedom and peace, 
Grant that our leaders may impartially administer justice, uphold integrity and truth, restrain wickedness and vice, and protect true religion and virtue. We pray that you would draw our political leaders to your truth and into your life. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We ask you in your goodness, O Lord, to comfort and sustain all who in this transitory life are in trouble, those in sorrow, those experiencing need, those dealing with sickness, maybe some even in this room, or those facing any other adversity. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, grant these our prayers for the sake of Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And now we approach the table. Lord, as we come to your table at your invitation, coming to receive the sustenance that you offer us through your body and through your blood, we pray that we would find nourishment in this meal, that you would sustain our souls, that you would draw us deeper into trust, into hope, into the worship of you alone, our King. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?